Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Here's a fun story about the military's long relationship with the Jeep, specifically the World War II Jeep. In 1940, the Army was taking bids for a new military vehicle and settled on a design by the Willys Overland Company that would be produced by Ford. How it got its name? The common belief is that it comes from the abbreviation of GP which is a common term for any military vehicle. The Jeep has even driven up the Capitol steps. For more on how the Jeep became America's favorite military vehicle, we'll speak to Miranda Summers Lowe, contributor to Task and Purpose. Well, first of all, it really is amazing how much uh, the, the Jeep is just beloved, iconic, right? For a piece of equipment, um, the Jeep has really remained just something that not just military personnel, but all Americans know about and, and have this affection for. Definitely. They have their so, own special Jeep wave when, they, when uh, <laughs> Jeep owners drive by each other. <laughs> well, and... You know, it's sort of something that that people stick with, right? Like once you become a a Jeep person, um, just kind of incredible in that um, in researching this, you know, to find out how many different possibilities there could have been for the Jeep, um, kind of starting in World War One when cars and vehicles first come on the market and you know of course there are different groups of people that want different things you know do you want a big truck that can carry a lot of things um you know do you want a small car that you know is is fast or do you want something that is kind of um you know all terrain and can move through a lot of things so there's like a lot of contention sort of going through as this gets developed including some of my personal favorites like you know, there were so many carts that were being pulled by horses at that point. So, you know, why not just make a, a cart that moves on its own and kind of looks like a lawnmower or, you know, when you, you go to shoot or, you know, a lot of these operations, you lie down on your belly. So, you know, sort of one rejected concept was 
nicknamed the belly flopper. And it was sort of like a, a motorized pallet that you'd lie down on. And then, you know, as the soldier moved from position to position, the, the whole vehicle would just move with it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, along the way, right? So it took all these little inspirations from those things, like you said uh, in the article, tractors and lawnmowers, this belly flopper thing. It took all of those inspirations and it kind of started becoming, you know, the Jeep, uh, you know, it, it met all the, the requirements, the criteria that the, the military needed at the time. Let's talk a little bit about the name Jeep, too, because that's a pretty fun part. As you mentioned, it almost was called the belly flopper. There's all sorts of different things to it. Uh, they called it, uh, let's see, blitz buggy, puddle jumper, midget, peep. And uh, probably where it really came from, I guess uh, you mentioned World War One grease monkeys had a term for military vehicles, GP, and that's probably where it came from. Yeah, so GP, you know, general purpose, uh, kind of runs together like Jeep, and that nickname seems to be around before the particular truck we talk about. Um, but one thing I learned researching the story is that term got used for a lot of other things, like um, aircraft, which I hadn't realized even through World War II, uh, some members of the Army Air Corps refused to call the Jeep a Jeep because they had a plane that they called Jeep. So they called them peeps, like the little marshmallow snack. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, and in, in, in inside the military, I guess they were going back and forth on, uh, on you know which one was the right one, which would they, what they would call it. When they finally, the military said, okay, we want to manufacture these things. Uh, I guess they said, uh, you know, we're going to give out this contract to whoever can do it. There was 135 automakers uh, at that time only two agreed to submit proposals. So right away, that limited right there. And uh, I guess they wanted 70 vehicles to be produced in just 75 days. So that's really tough, probably why a lot of them backed out. But tell us who came through with the, the final design here. Sure. So, yeah, you got to appreciate how quickly this came together, that when they finally decided it was worth kind of doing, you know, a, a small truck that we kind of think of as being a Jeep now, um, two different companies put in proposals, so the Bantam Company and uh, Willie's Overland. And at that point, Willie's um, was well known to the Army because they made a lot of um, artillery carts and carriages, but, you know, wouldn't necessarily be who you would think um, would make this vehicle. But um, once there were two prototypes, the uh, Bantam and, and the Willies, it kind of became clear that um, even though the Willies came in, proposal came in late and uh, overweight because they had put an oversized engine in it, uh, in field testing, the oversized engine did fantastic um, and everyone was loving it. But the problem with that is Willies didn't actually have the capacity to make the number of, of trucks that the Army was hoping for. So, you know, in, in one of those great moments of history, there's a, a chance meeting in Washington, D.C., where one of the um, undersecretaries who was working on this, undersecretaries of the Army, saw Edsel Ford himself and asked if he would, you know, agree to a special deal where Ford would, you know, agree to help Willies produce this. So a yeah. lot of the original Jeeps, have that Willie's label on it, but we're actually um, made by Ford. Yeah, that's amazing. And and carries on to this day, right? There are still certain model trims of the Jeep that go by the Willie's name. You can see them, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see it. It'll say Rubicon on the front. 
on the hood, but sometimes they'll sell, say willies on them too. So they're all there. And and then from then on, you know, just kind of uh, how do you get it funded? Uh, part of this whole thing is uh, there's a lot of great classic pictures that you have on the article on the website showing the Jeep from, you know, when it started in World War II and beyond and the Jeep driving on, on the Capitol steps, you know, how it plays into pop culture. There was a bunch of songs about it, Four Jills in a Jeep and movies. You know, it really took off after that. Absolutely. And one of the funnest things I found um, when I went to, you know, I saw that picture of, um, you know, the army came, they actually put Jeeps out in front of the Capitol building and they gave members of Congress the chance to drive it up and down the Capitol steps. But it was hard to pick which picture because it was just, uh, there were so many. It was obvious that um, even at that point, before it was in mass production, every, you know, senator and congressman who got to drive this, um, was just having a blast and got their picture taken. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the picture you ended up putting in there was Senator Meade of New York, and uh, he's just like waving back the camera with his hand up, big smile on his face, and <laughs> we had uh, a few service members in the back seat, uh, and that definitely, definitely looks like fun. And, and, you know, just kind of this whole trajectory, right? It just uh, uh, really was being used, I guess, you know, for military purposes too, but just like the service members coming back home, so did the Jeep. And, you know, it obviously has its big history now in the, in the States and all, but it came back and went back to its tractor roots, pulling threshers and plows and was used to be converted for like uh, mini firefighting trucks. Uh, so that, you know, it, it got a, a ton of use. Miranda Summers Lowe, contributor to Task and Purpose. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Finally for this week, we'll tell you about a man named Vaughn Smith who cleans carpets for a living. Vaughn is also a hyperpolyglot. A hyperpolyglot is someone who can speak 11 languages or more, but Vaughn is special. By his count, he can speak closer to 37 languages. To see what makes his brain tick, he decided to undergo an MRI at MIT, and his brain does not function like that of a monolingual person. For more on what drove him to learn so many languages, we'll speak to Jessica Contrera, reporter the Washington Post. You know, when I first heard that there was this guy out there and he could speak, you know, more than two dozen languages, I, of course, was like a little skeptical. (laughs) Um, But it turns out that that some people, they really have this ability. There have been a number of um, what we call hyperpolyglots documented throughout history and living today. And even though Vaughn, you know, definitely does not flaunt this and doesn't necessarily wear, you know, even really tell people about it, I've seen him in action using his language skills and it's just completely remarkable. So yes, he has about um, 24 languages that he can carry on lengthy conversations in. And when I asked him to please count all of his languages that he knows, you know, at least the basics in, the number was uh, just over 40. Wow. (laughs) It's a pretty amazing. And in talking to him and, you know, uh, doing the write-up on all this, you kind of come to understand maybe why he wanted to learn all this. So, I mean, he really has this deep need for wanting to understand other people, multiple people. And in learning the language, you know, learning where the people come from themselves, learning more about the person, even the person on the other end feels good about it, right? It's uh, almost seeing them for a sense of worth that they might not have had before just because he takes so much interest in who they are and the language that they know. Let's talk a little bit about more of those languages, though. So he's fluent in at least eight. He says fluent. So that's English, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Czech, Slovak, Bulgarian, and Romanian. Those are his top ones, but he's got so much other languages under his belt. One of the most interesting things about Vaughn is he's actually very interested in indigenous languages. So there are a lot of languages that have died out in our world, and there are many that are still endangered. And so he has spent part of his time investing in those languages, some that are more well-known, like Nahuatl in Mexico, and some that are are really spoken by a small, small number of people. So um, one of his favorite languages is the Salish language, which is spoken by a group of people in Montana, and they have really welcomed Vaughn into their community. You know, he didn't just sort of read this on the internet. He actually has been to Montana multiple times, been to the reservation where there is a language school for Salish, um, and he's constantly working to improve his Salish skills um, and really try to spread love of indigenous and native languages to all different kinds of people to show them that, you know, they have value, that he values them. And it's really infectious to watch. 
Definitely. And who, uh, Vaughn Smith as a person, uh, where does he come from? Where does he live? You know, what set him off to kind of learn so many languages at a young age? So Vaughn grew up in and around Washington, D.C., which really he credits as a huge reason for how he was able to have exposure to so many languages. Of course, there are people from all around the world who live here in the D.C. community. And particularly when he was in high school, he had already sort of realized he had this affinity for language. And, you know, as we talked about, I think what Vaughn wants is is what everyone wants is to, to feel connected to the people around them. And in a lot of ways, Vaughn did struggle with that. He realized later in life that he is most likely on the autism spectrum. And so certain things like social cues, you know, are a little bit more difficult for him. But through languages, he really offers him an ability to connect with all different kinds of people. So at his high school, where there were many different groups of students from around the world, he used languages as a way to become friends with different groups of people. So by the time he was finishing up high school, he already was working on Amharic, (laughs) Russian, he was working on Romanian. He was already amassing a huge amount of languages, yeah. as well as, you know, his native languages, which are both English and Spanish. There's a video on the website for this story. You, it, within the story, you have a bunch of clips of him speaking, you know, whatever language, <laughs> insert language here, right? You have him speaking all sorts of stuff. But one thing that I did uh, find interesting, right, is his English accent, let's say. There is really no accent. It's very neutral. And you would think somebody speaking so many languages, some stuff might have rubbed off or anything. But yeah, his English accent, very neutral. What, what did you think of, of that? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting observation, especially because something that Vaughn does incredibly well from the people I've talked to is called like accent reproduction. So if you, he were to ask you, you know, how do you say, what are we having for dinner in Lithuanian? Um, and a Lithuanian speaker said the sentence back to him, he would be able to replicate it almost perfectly. And wow. so all of these different people that I watched him interact with, they were just amazed by his accent reproduction and, and, and the, the accuracy of his accents. Now, that's not to say he's perfect in all of them by any means, but when, for example, we were in a Starbucks and he befriended some people, he heard their accent, his friend went up to them and, and they started talking. We learned that they spoke Dutch. And so he started um, speaking in Dutch with them and they were just totally amazed that he's, he's never been to the Netherlands. In fact, he's never traveled really much at all, except for to Mexico in a very brief trip to Belgium. Um, otherwise, he has not been to a lot of these places, but his accent in those languages is, is really remarkable. All right, let's talk about his brain now, because one of the curiosities, right, is how can somebody know so much? How can he carry on so many languages fluently and, and really connect with people on those deeper levels, you know, in, in languages that's not native to him? Uh, so the question was, you know, is something different about his brain? You accompanied him to MIT where they did a brain scan on him. They played languages and, and kind of watched how his brain was firing off. And some interesting things came out of there because you also got your brain scan too. And what you basically learn is that his brain isn't working as hard as uh, someone like you, maybe myself, who I know English and Spanish, and that's pretty much it. But uh, his brain isn't working as hard as ours would be. That's right. So basically what we wanted to know 
from these folks at MIT who have been studying how the brains make language is essentially does his brain look different than my brain or just any other monolingual brain. I myself, I've, I've really struggled always to learn language. And now I realize maybe I, I sort of have been copping out a little bit and just saying, <laughs> oh, it's difficult for me. So I don't have the time to do it as much as I would love to. But what I've learned, you know, from Vaughn is that like, it doesn't matter if you do it perfectly. When you try, you know, you really are showing someone a sign of respect. And so I watched Vaughn do this over and over again. I really wanted to know what was happening in his brain. So yes, what we learned from Evelina Federenko at MIT and her graduate students was that when you look at our brains under an fMRI machine and you put us through tests that show, you know, we were sort of reading English words. And when we would see a word that has meaning in English, those language areas of our brains would light up on the screen, essentially, by tracking the blood flow in our brains. And it became very clear um, when they analyzed the results that Vaughn's language areas are incredibly small which is a little bit counterintuitive, right? You would think, oh, they're, they're going to be big because they are storing so much information. Um, but how it actually works is, is sort of like a muscle, right? Because his, it's so efficient, right? He, he doesn't need to use that much of his brain in order to do the task of comprehending language, whereas I need to use a larger part of my brain. His language areas are very small and they're very efficient. It's very interesting and just kind of going along with the theme of this, you know, he's so incredible a person, right, to be able to learn so many languages. And you write at the beginning of the piece, but why is he cleaning carpets? You know, uh, somebody can speak so many languages. I mean, you can make a very lucrative career being an interpreter, different things like that. But he didn't go that route. Uh, I guess he found it difficult to stick with certain jobs or just never had opportunities. And he kind of likes the casualness of what he does. Yeah, I think in our society, we're really accustomed to deciding someone's value based on kind of what's on their resume, right? And you have someone like Vaughn, especially in a place like D.C., he didn't go to college. And things like making a resume, things like knowing, okay, here's how I apply to a job, you know, kind of point A to point B, those kinds of executive tasks are definitely more difficult for him. Um, Reading social cues is more difficult for him. And so what he explained to me is, even though he would really like to be utilizing his languages for work, it's just been really difficult for him to find something that would work and last. And so right now, I think a lot of people in his life feel like he has these talents that are being wasted in some ways. And I do, I, I do see that. But I also see that despite that, he finds all different kinds of ways to find meaning in his life. You know, I've never met somebody with so many hobbies. He, (laughs) you know, he has a model train set. He develops film photography. He's an amazing cook. He travels um, and he makes the time to just sort of in a coffee shop and meet new people. And, uh, you know, here in D.C., everything is so frequently go, 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 you know, one achievement to the next. And so I think spending time with Vaughn has been really inspiring for me to think about, you know, not just, okay, I'm going to really put in the time now to learn Spanish and Italian, (laughs) but also um, sort of shape my view of how I spend my time and how I connect with the world. And that's the coolest part, reading through this and then your profile of him. You do feel that. And I could just imagine, uh, you know, some type of travel show with him as a center. You drop him in any country, <laughs> he learns the language on the spot and, uh, you know, does all the other crazy stuff that you do on these travel channels, uh, travel shows. 
Jessica Contrera, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for, for having me on and for highlighting the story. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.